This is your host, Tim Powell, from the Oil and Gas Council. Today, we are joined by Darren Geiger, CEO of Cornerstone Acquisition and Management Company. During our discussion, Darren talks about how Cornerstone studies the macro and geopolitical factors in the market in order to drive their strategy. Since inception in 2004, Cornerstone has used hedging, asset sales, and acquisitions at opportune times in the economic and commodity price cycles in order to maximize shareholder value. Darren also talks about how ESG policies, COVID-19, and the oil price war are affecting today's market. I hope you enjoy. Darren, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, how you doing in this crazy time? Well, we're doing, we're doing pretty well. Um, actually, uh, obviously, uh, it's, it's a stressful time for, for all within the, uh, uh, the industry, but I think where we're positioned, um, leaves us to take advantage of, of, of opportunities that, that come about um, when you see dislocations such as, such as we're in today. Perfect. Well, let's revisit that because, you know, kind of taking a longer term view on the world and, and, and cyclical trends, both from a geopolitical and, um, you know, from an economic standpoint is something I think you guys have done well. And so we'll touch on that. But Let's start out uh, real basic, and we like to do this in every episode. A personal background on yourself, um, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, and your career track. I think everyone's different on how they get into the mineral space and how they start their companies. Unlike the EMP and the traditional and gas space, minerals is relatively new, and so you get people from all different walks of life and all different skill sets coming to the table and, and launching companies. And I think that's what makes the space unique is that you have some who are a little more savvy on the finance side. Some are purely land driven. Others, um, you know, might come from a real estate background or, you know, everyone's different. And we like to paint that picture because as an investor, more, more likely than not, you're going to be kind of an entrant in, in the upcoming years, family offices, hedge funds, pensions, endowments, so on and so forth. And we just want to show them that the people leading the industry, weren't oil and gas lifers um, and, and that they've gotten up to speed in a relatively short period of time. So, so with that, with that being said, I'll hand it over to you. If you, you can give a little color on, on your personal background and, and then when and how you got into the mineral space. Sure. Thank you, Tim. Again, I'm Darren Geiger, CEO uh, and owner of Cornerstone Acquisition and Management. I'm also portfolio manager of uh, the Cornerstone Managed Funds. I grew up uh, just outside of Chicago, joined the Air Force immediately after uh, high school. Uh, once, uh, once that was complete, uh, I stayed out in Arizona where I was stationed, attended Arizona State University. I joined uh, Preservation Capital in uh, 2000, late 2003, early 2004 timeframe. That preservation covered all commodities, whether they be precious metals, base metals, agriculture, certainly energy, both on the upstream and downstream side, as well as the service side. Um, and so when I, I joined Cornerstone uh, in, uh, in late o- October of 2005 uh, as lead acquisitions analyst, um, eventually took over portfolio management of Cornerstone managed funds in 2009 
and through the evolution took full control of the company in 2018. Yeah, uh, can you give a little color? So it sounds like Cornerstone was already in place. When, when did it become an oil and gas minerals and royalties focus? And you, you, you kind of introduced yourself being the CEO of Cornerstone Acquisition Management, but also the Matt portfolio manager for their funds. So can you, can you kind of, ex, you know, clarify and, uh, you know, the difference of both and maybe a little bit of the, the legacy of, of Cornerstone itself. And if there's investment exposure and, you know, in other, in other industries. Sure. So Cornerstone and our managed funds launched in 04. So I joined soon thereafter in 2005. Uh, and when Cornerstone launched, the strategy had always been a strict domestic onshore minerals and royalties focus. Um, and again, uh, sitting here in, in 2020, we've we've been one of the one of the groups with the long, longer durations in the mineral space. And really, our goal at the time of launch was to provide investors really a more conservative and intelligent way to gain private oil and gas exposure. So we sought to create a vehicle that provided what we've come to know in the royalty space with consistent yield generation combined with a portfolio of underlying assets that have the ability to appreciate through time as opposed to simply depleting away. And, and really how you get there starts with acquiring at value, um, possessing assets with strong de developmental potential and evolving with the industry, uh, whether that be technological advances, um, certain, certain new plays or geography, uh, infrastructure changes, et cetera. So, in Cornerstones, how we came to approach the industry was really, or, or our twist to the industry was to provide this vehicle in, in a relatively liquid investment structure. So targeting those that preferred not to lock up capital for several years in, in private equity, but also saw drawbacks on the public side, so instant liquidity. So our funds offer semi-annual entry and exit uh, with six months notice for withdrawals. And that's really been the key to our uh, longevity over, over, over our 15 year existence. Because again, that, that semi-annual or six month notice for redemption gives you time, adequate time to prepare for redemption. So we know, we know what's coming out in six months and we can prepare accordingly. And that's crucial. Yeah, no, so what about, um, you know, in 2004, you guys launched this strategy. I mean, at that point, what you had John Morgan and Anthem doing stuff for, for quite a while. Scott Noble's active. You got royalty clearing house in the early days. What was the insight that, that said, yeah, I think this is, this is something we should do. I mean, um, cause it, it's extremely early and, uh, you know, looking back hindsight's 2020, you guys look really, really smart in the moment. I'm sure it wasn't that clear, or you, maybe you saw something. Was it, was it your background in, in, you know, with a hedge fund that gave you some sort of insight from a financial perspective, or were you? Did you? Have yeah, you're right. I mean, back in '04, it was it was early days in in terms of this type of strategy. I mean, at the time, really kind of the marker were the Canadian royalty trusts at the time, where you know investors were really attracted to that consistent yield generation. Um, however, uh, again, with, with the kind of the tax changes out of Canada, um, 
you had a lot of those somewhat wind down. Um, in, in terms of our case, really the background came from from a fixed income type of approach. You know, how how can we generate something similar to clipping coupons on a fixed income type of, of instrument, um, but also have exposure to energy. And, and certainly through uh, researching uh, the industry, it seemed as though you know, minerals and royalties was, was the best approach. And we've, we've really seen an evolution here in the US over our 15 year existence of, you know, back in 0405, royalties were kind of the, the um, I'll say unpopular or shunned investment, very kind of boring, consistent yield generation, but um, you know maybe mid to high single digits, maybe low double digits, and most of the capital was going towards you know drill you know drilling type of deals where IRRs were 30% plus. Um, but but again, in the U.S., you had kind of the evolution of 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 going to the uh, the upstream MLP model. Um, we didn't necessarily like that model simply because, you know, from our point of view, we're trying to decipher where we are in the commodity cycle and act accordingly. So at, at perceived peaks, we're looking to hedge out our production and or divest uh, assets. Um, conversely, at perceived troughs, we're looking to aggressively acquire. So when we look at that model, really they're acquiring no matter where they are in the cycle. And, and they do that because by and large, they're acquiring mature assets um, that are depleting, and they have to keep that distribution steady or rising. Uh, otherwise, investors just start heading for the exits. And when you have dislocations like we've, like we're, you know, we're in today, or back in 2014, um, the model just, in our view, somewhat breaks when when you have dislocations like that. Um, then there's other attributes as well. I mean, um, you know, certainly some were over levered um, at the time as well. So, so it really depended on which MLP you're talking, upstream MLP you're talking about. But, but we've seen that, you know, again, when you, when you see undue stress uh, on the commodity price level, um, th those type of uh, structures can struggle. Yeah. I remember back when, um, when Viper went public and then you had Prairie Sky in Canada and, you know, Blackstone followed suit and there was the whole discussion of, of C-Corp versus, versus MLP for the Pubco mineral company. And it's interesting that you guys had kind of done the math and figured out that that wasn't the right fit, you know, 10 years prior. Um, and so that's, that's really good foresight. So what, what about, let's go back into the hedging strategy. So, this is not something you hear about much in the minerals and royalty space. People kind of look at it and they go, well, yeah, we got a simple hedge in place or we're, we're just a minerals company. Um, you know, what, why there's not, doesn't need to be too much sophistication. Uh, I, I would love for you to talk about kind of the historical approach. Uh, if you're being longer term in this space, you're not just looking to build and flip. The, the real value right. of, of a 10 plus year horizon in hedging at the right time and locking in prices and give some real life examples kind of the late 2000s right and then if you can give in a little more detail on you know how sophisticated your your hedging strategy is and if you guys have done dynamic hedging or it, it's just simple swaps would, would love uh, to hear a little bit more color on that sure um so again cornerstone is made up of 
uh, primarily those with, with strong financial backgrounds. Uh, myself, uh, our team, um, we all obviously have uh, significant oil and gas experience, but at the core, strong financial backgrounds. Um, in terms of cornerstone in our managed funds, I mean, hedging has always played an imperative role uh, for us. What we do is we, we, we simply don't press it and we generally wait for, you know, these outlier type of events to come to us that create oversized moves in the futures market. So when we look back at our, at our history, really started right when I came on board. Um, one of our, you know, largest hedging positions that we, that we kicked off was simply in the aftermath of hurricanes Katrina and Rita hitting the Gulf Coast in, in 2005. So we sold forward four years of double digit natural gas prices um, using just simple total return swaps. Uh, in 2008, you know, fast forward a few years, 2008, you know, we were, we were essentially priced out of the acquisition market as oil prices reached what we thought internally were, were relatively unsustainable levels. So we, we huddled up again, um, asked ourselves how can we outperform or how can we how can we lock in these type of uh, these type of returns so again we simply sold forward uh, approximately four years uh, of wti uh, between 120 to mid 130 uh, per barrel um, you know now as we fast forward several more years the onset of short cycle U.S. shale over the past several years has has really dramatically compressed the oil futures curve. So, when an outlier oil and gas event occurs, what used to be kind of that that key three to four year move of the curve now may be as short as six to eighteen months uh, in terms of a window to sell forward. Um, so we've taken advantage of, of more recent events such as you know, Arab Spring or recent attacks on Aramco facilities or the Iranian strife. Um, but again, it's been over a much shorter time horizon at the front end of the curve. Um, now with what's going on today, we may see this trend somewhat reversing as U.S. production declines and the timing to bring additional production online takes longer due to e E&P CapEx essentially being cut to nothing more than sustaining current output. Um, but again, we've always viewed hedging as a tool to utilize in order to stamp down our managed funds volatility, help secure acceptable returns. Uh, that won't change going forward. You just be, need to be more nimble and quick to act. So to get to your question in terms of what products, gen generally total return swaps, we've, we've utilized collars, um, some, some accumulators, uh, nothing too exotic, but but I would say over the over the our 15 years total return swaps has simply kind of worked for us. And and also too, which is which is really interesting. And you know, I don't want to speak for others, but my intuition is that not every minerals and royalties company out there right now is is following you know the macro events in the world as and tying it very closely to their strategy like you guys are. I mean, can can you give a little bit of insight, maybe your team strategically or or your board just keeping a, an eye out for for events that happen in the Middle East that happen, you know, like Hurricane Katrina. I mean, stuff like that is really interesting. And and it's not just a accruing value from 
acquisitions and, and building the portfolio is just total return and figuring out a way to manufacture that given the cards that are dealt with the economy, right? No, I mean, that's something we spend uh, a significant amount of time on here at, at Cornerstone is, is understanding both, you know, the, the macro of, of you know, geopolitical situations as well as the micro of what's going on in our portfolio. Um, so, you know, as I said before, we generally try to ascertain where we are in that com commodity cycle and act accordingly. Um, that being said, we're generally buy and hold asset managers. However, when those certain macro and micro events unfold, we will act on it. So just to give you, you know, a few examples, in mid-2014, we sold over 90% of our portfolio after, after noticing both macro, you know, again, global oil supply growth coming online, strong U.S. dollar, softening sanctions against Iran with the prior administration, uh, backward aided futures curve. Um, so, so, so really facing some, some macro headwinds, but also on the micro level, meaning por portfolio specific, um, you know, we, every acquisition we make has, has a production piece and, an, and what we call an upside piece or a development piece. Um, and so when we acquire assets, that, that upside piece obviously kind of uh, is developed over time and fights the depletion, but but essentially it, it can get somewhat, uh, say, filled over time. So we noticed headwinds there as well. As, as there wasn't as much upside in terms of uh, the de development piece of our portfolio as, as most of these assets were acquired several years earlier. So again, we sourced a Houston-based private equity back group, um, negotiated uh, $163 million price for, uh, again, about 90% of our portfolio, and, and executed that. Um, and then you know, kind of our mindset was we were going to utilize that capital to redeploy opportunistically and patiently without taking a, you know, higher growth assets without taking a, a step up the risk spectrum. That was kind of an outlier move for us in order to, you know, again, divest that that size of the portfolio. But then again, we, we're always kind of looking at what's going on on the ground and, and, and acting on it. So, you know, another more recent example revolved around politics. So in early 18, we essentially exited all of our Colorado exposure. Um, you know, the anti-fracking initiatives that increasingly find their way on the ballots just make Colorado exposure a, a more difficult. So we sold before the real turn of, of investor sentiment. Um, it's an asset we acquired right at the tail end of 2014 upon the, the divestment of the portfolio I just spoke about. And we, you know, we exited exactly three years later, generated a 2x return on that investment. And we just rather eliminate the risk and redeploy elsewhere. I mean, there's there's plenty of opportunities domestically in which for us to invest. And and again, um, if we can avoid kind of those pitfalls or or you know navigate through that minefield, we we certainly try to do that. Uh, on the back of that comment, using Colorado as an example, it, one question I had that I think this is a good time to to field it is the impact of ESG on the sector now. You know, you don't really hear about that as much in the minerals and royalty space, uh, but it's it's huge right now on on the EMP side, 
you know, anyone, you know, water midstream, um, oil field service, everybody, when they're looking to raise money, there's so much scrutiny on traditional oil and gas right now if in the LP world uh, because returns have, you know, from a broad perspective gone down over the last decade. And so, and a lot of the LPs and these funds that are investing in oil and gas are, are getting pressure to, you know, cleaner energy, you know, what is your carbon footprint? And so that's one of the top things that's on the mandates of every CEO who's running a company in today's space. But you don't hear about it as much in minerals and royalties. However, you know, one thing, and, and Will Cullen and I talked about this when he did his episode a couple of weeks ago, oil and gas uh, production and what EMP companies do and how they act and behave is very much tied at the hip at, with the minerals and royalty space. And there's, there's a disconnect there, sometimes on the investment side as well, because if production goes down, royalty income goes down. And so the ESG impact on those players inadvertently affects the mineral space. So you gave an example of how you pivoted and decided to sell something um, in Colorado that was getting a, you know a big, a lot of headwinds on the environmental side. Can can you give some other examples of just how you uh, blend ESG into your your overall strategy? Sure. No, and you're 100 percent right. Um, you know, as we witnessed during the Democratic debates a few weeks and months ago, you know, climate change and ESG concerns are, are high priority items among the U.S. population and certainly uh, among the larger investment groups today. And, and, you know, that pressure will continue to mount on states and, and EMP companies within those states to utilize best practices concerning production. Um, so I think, you know, on an ongoing basis, if I look out and, you know, the, over the next decade, you'll see much more stringent regulations regarding flaring, uh, well site emissions, chemicals disclosure, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but, you know, with most things, I think there's a, you know, a happy medium there that everyone can live with. Uh, it certainly won't persuade those pursuing an outright frack, fracking ban, but generally speaking, nothing other than a ban likely would anyway. Um, so again, from Cornerstone's perspective, we do what we can. So we want to associate ourselves with those, those companies or operators that do adhere to best practices as they will be the ones that aren't shunned by, you know, the Black Rocks or, or the, the larger investment firms or groups with reasonable ESG policies. So you have those that just say, look, we can't have any exposure to um, anything carbon-based. And then you have those that, that have a more reasonable approach of, okay, we can, we can have exposure, but it's going to be with those uh, EMP companies or, or leverage ourselves to those that, that are practicing reasonable um, social responsibility. So for us, we focus 100% onshore. Uh, obviously, uh, you start looking offshore, big accidents uh, are, are more uh, apt to happen if, if there's some sort of blowout or something like that. Um, we obviously don't control operations as a minerals royalties focused group. Um, but again, we want, we want to associate ourselves with, with those that, that, that practice um, social responsibility. And I think looking at our portfolio, you know, one of our largest positions is in a CO2 flood operated by Oxy. Um, and certainly while Oxy is facing numerous operational headwinds as all EMPs are today, 
they are one of the leaders with regard to EMP uh, social responsibility. So again, you know, as you stated, the investment dollars go to those increasingly that 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 focus on this, um, and we want to be associated as as mineral and royalty owners uh, underneath those such companies. No, that's um, yeah, I, I think that's an important point. It, you know, from a positioning stand, standpoint, when you look at this space and who you're raising the money from, it is going to be from those who are probably a little more sensitive to these issues, right? Um, you know, yeah. the longer term, the pensions, endowments, foundations. Uh, so that's a good point. Now, I agree with everything you said. Let's put that on pause. Current environment, demand gets sucked out of the demand supply uh, balance with Corona, with COVID-19. You got this price war on top of it. So you got a double black swan. And now oil is, you know, in the 20s and there's a lot of uncertainty. Could it get down further? You know, what that plays out at is much cheaper energy for the consumer. Um, and, you know, I, I'm saying this kind of on the back of what I've heard from others. So, you know, I, I haven't verified and read it myself, but I believe that renewables uh, projects around the globe are, are being halted or slashed at a consistent rate with, with oil and gas projects. Do we almost see a, a slowdown or, or a bit of a, a short-term reverse in regards to all these headwinds with oil and gas? Because if, if energy is now this cheap, it, it becomes for the end. And then you look at the, the economic pressures that we put on individuals with you know, small businesses being strained and individuals maybe getting laid off and everything. Um, will will they put some of their concerns around, you know, ESG uh, and environmental impacts and, and think more with their wallet and saying, man, I, I just need to survive right now. This is tough times. We're going to go into a recession. I need to pay the bills. I'm going to do whatever is cheapest. Uh, and, you know, if, if producing oil and again, I think the industry does an amazing job and just gets a bad rep in a lot of respects with reducing their footprint and using new technologies and constantly innovating. Um, and so hopefully, you know, companies do a better, better job of, of positioning themselves like that. But in a time like this where, you know, all the, all the nice to have issues kind of go out the window and you got to get into survival mode, does it become as pressing in the next four to five years where now it's more let's just figure out how to survive and get returns for our investors. And as long as it's responsible, do, do whatever we can. And it, you're not getting scrutinized as much on the ESG angle. Do you, do you foresee it con continuing like it has been or being downplayed a little bit like I'm alluding? to? No, I think you're right. I think it's going to be downplayed. I mean, obviously when you have somewhat this perfect storm of, of issues developing, developing with, with COVID-19 that's really impacting every facet of everybody's life not just domestically but but globally i i i read or or saw an article where something in the neighborhood of 95 percent of of all economies or gdp are in some sort of social distancing at this point and that and the impact that that has alone on transportation and, and uh oil demand is dramatic um, but again, you, you, everybody needs to take care, take care of the here and now. And, and as you stated, it's, it's, you know, whether it's job security, um, you know, paying your, your rent or your mortgage, that's obviously going to take priority over, 
uh, other other issues that um, such as ESG, at least in the, in the short term. That being said, um, I think the election is going to, you know, the presidential election uh, this year is going to um, uh, drive a lot of that as well. Um, so certainly, if if um, Biden successful in uh, unseating President Trump, um, th th then again, he has a priority uh, with kind of the Democratic mandate to to um, to push ESG policies in a way that that we're not seeing today, at least at the at the administrative level uh, or federal level. Um, that's not to say that the companies themselves are going to kind of follow whether it's President Trump in a second term or, or, or Democrats, they're going to have to make their own decisions based upon what their investor base is demanding. But I think by and large over the next decade, several decades, ESG concerns, social responsibility concerns will rise. But certainly as commodity prices have plummeted and we're in this, this situation that's really unprecedented, that's going to be the, the overriding concern today. Uh, as opposed to um, tackling the you know, ESG climate concerns, whether I'm going to purchase that Tesla or EV over the next several years, obviously, you know, those kind of things uh, are pushed off a little every time commodity prices drop to the levels they're at today. I mean, you see SUV sales are always rising when when oil prices are low or gasoline prices are low. So you will see that in the near term, but but again. You know, we need to look out past the near term and ESG will continue to be a very, very important issue uh, for us and, and the oil and gas industry in, in large. If I could add just one more thing, I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic that, you know, fracking gets such a bad rap when when natural gas fracking has really led to the demise of, of coal fired generation, a power generation. Um, and, and so, yes, while it's not the perfect you know, clean fuel obviously more of a bridge fuel, it has led or, or really pushed the demise of, of coal-fired generation. So, so again, I mean, not, not all fracking technology can be viewed in, in kind of a, a limited scope of, of being negative. Uh, certainly there are ESG policies within that that, that help, um, you know, again, push more technological advances towards cleaner fuels. No, uh, I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, we, we've kind of danced around the, the topic of the current environment. I, I'd like to kind of give you the floor to talk about what it means. So you gave examples of, of strategic moves you guys have made either on the hedging side, on the divestor side, kind of moments in time and cycles where you felt it was right. One, have you ever seen a double swan, black swan event like right now and, you know, with the mineral space, it's quite unique because a lot of the people that um, you guys buy from and and your peers buy from are direct, you know, mineral owners themselves. And so the it, it, it's different than buying from a company. It, is the company over levered or not? You know, do they do they have a strong balance sheet to ride this out with enough cash? Do they, you know, do they have good rock? There, there's all sorts of elements when it looks at, you know buying companies but when you're buying from the direct mineral owner the COVID-19 overlay of, of the price war is is a super unique opportunity because so can you give some color on that and 
how Cornerstone's viewing it and, and what you guys plan to do here in the, in the foreseeable future? Sure. Um, so certainly, you know, the macro environment is obviously highly unstable and most likely the U.S. and world recession is already underway. So global demand for all energy will be under pressure over, over the next few quarters, uh, compounded by oversupply due to, you know, the OPEC plus collapse. As I stated, basically the whole world's in some sort of lockdown. So it's, it's, it's you know, demand destruction is anywhere, you know, from, you know, 20 to 30 percent of, of daily uh, oil use. So, so we're talking 25, 30 million barrels per day offline. Um, so while, while there are corollaries with the period of 2014 to 16, as we look at it, we anticipate that the availability of credit and liquidity in, in energy post-crisis will look much different. Dislocations in credit have only really begun, and one of the most acute sectors of distress will be energy. So banks, private equity, and others that traditionally fund the energy patch have largely lost patience and, and have little to backstop their exposure. Uh, it's not the capital markets. Um, industry buyers are, 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 are lower. So new redeterminations on the banking side in the coming six to 12 months will leave the industry star for, for capital even more than, than they are now. So we may see forbearance run out in the energy sector. And if this were to occur, you could potentially see selling pressure coming from you know, a whole host of new players, such as banks. You know, the hedging protection that helped cushion the pressure on the EMP side from banks in 2016 just isn't there today. So, you know, if we take a look from the investor side, you know, we feel they'd be well served to take advantage of what will certainly be cycle lows for energy. Uh, we're certainly at, at extremes that aren't economic for producers anywhere on the planet. So these stressors will lead to you know, significant opportunities for uh, more astute and patient buyers such as Cornerstone. You know, from the EMP side, really it used to be several months ago, okay, how do we live within cash flow while continuing development and so forth? Now it's how do we remain solvent? And so you're seeing a massive coring down of all EMPs flashing CapEx to just sustaining what's already uh, online or already producing and just selling everything else that is either non-core uh, or, or they don't control. And so royalties and min minerals and royalties falls under that, under that kind of um, say bucket. And, and so again, we are reaching out, you know, I think one thing that we pride ourselves on at Cornerstone is really leveraging our 15 years of industry relationships and contacts. So we, we do continuously reach out to those that we feel have the assets we'd like to acquire, um, are undergoing some sort of, we'll call it stress, need to raise ca capital, either pay down debt, fund their drilling pr program, whatever it may be. Um, but again, that's what we do on a, on a daily basis is, you know, we're not just looking at what's being listed on the auction sites, what's being marketed through brokers, but we're, we're on the phones with, with EMP companies um, trying to get organically create uh, acquisition opportunities. And we feel that, you know, this, this is one of those, as you called it, double black swans that, that's really going to bring out just a, a wave of, of opportunity in terms of acquisition. Um, that we've never that we haven't seen through our existence even. And from Cornerstone's perspective, you know, since we sold in 2014 the the bulk of the of the portfolio, we've only redeployed about a third of that capital. We sit largely unlevered, 
since 2014. We've we've employed a little bit of leverage since then, but we have ample capacity on our credit line. So in, in a in a way, it obviously it, it negatively impacts us on on what we currently hold on, on a on a production basis, but it does lead to massive opportunity on that on the acquisition side to to put more capital to work at, at what we think is um, an unsustainable kind of trough no that's i appreciate that so it really looks like you guys are, are going to be targeting more larger types of deals um versus everything being super organic at the individual level um i i think here towards the end of the episode i'd like to approach these questions i'm about to ask you from the 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 lens of an investor, may, maybe one that's not as sophisticated in oil and gas or minerals and royalties uh, in particular. So if you can kind of clarify and explain certain terminology or how things work, that would be helpful. So let's start with it. Uh, number one, you start talking about bankruptcies and insolvencies being uh, an issue uh, and kind of a fight for survival on the EMP side and that you, you guys are talking with a lot of those EMPs and there's opportunity there. If an investor is on the other end of, of, of this saying, well, great, there's a lot of opportunity, but I read articles about, you know, if this continues and Russia and Saudi Arabia draw this out for six, nine, 12 months plus, 90% or 80% of, of operators go bankrupt. It's crazy numbers. Why are you going to buy stuff and then people go bankrupt? Can you talk about the perpetuity aspect of minerals and, and how, you know, being a long-term holder you have bankruptcy protection in a way where you don't lose it? Sure. So for, first I would say that while U.S. upstream, so the EMP sector is, is undergoing immense strain, Saudi Arabia and Russia are, aren't immune either. Um, you know, Russia, you have very old fields, hundreds if not thousands of miles of pipeline to, to, to get that product uh, exported out. Um, you start shutting in those type of fields, um, they, they just don't come back. Uh, Saudi Arabia running massive fiscal deficits. I don't think, I, I think this is personally a uh, somewhat of a miscalculation by Saudi Arabia. I think they underestimated the, the demand destruction impact of COVID-19. And, look, and, and eventually there will be a way for, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia to save face and come to some sort of um, some sort of agreement. What that looks like, still a bit unsure, but but again, n- nobody of the three kind of top producing nations are immune in, in this in this downturn. From from our perspective, you're, you're right. There will be a, a, a lot of bankruptcies. Um, again, we, we saw this in the 2014 downturn that that, that lasted through 16. Um, you'll see it even more pronounced today. But on the royalty side, what you'll see is just simply consolidation amongst you know, stronger operators. So think of the Exxons and the Chevrons with very solid balance sheets that will go out there and, and just do take-unders. So they're, they're not paying any acquisition premium, really, for, for very attractive acreage uh, and, and positions domestically. Um, and so, you know, if you were, you know, paid by a certain operator before on the royalty side, and and they were to uh, say say go under into some sort of bankruptcy, or, or uh, be acquired, you're, you're you're being paid now by by a stronger operator, um, that that again can be beneficial because that operator can now fund development, um, and and so as a as a mineral and royalty holder, you're really you're not subject to the same headwinds as you are on the upstream side. 
first and foremost being the operating expenses, but also, as you mentioned, um, if, if in fact the, the company falls into some sort of bankruptcy, um, it, it's simply a shifting typically of, of, of your revenue stream from one company to, to another. That's a really good point. I mean, I don't know, I'll just kind of throw out an idea and it could be rhetorical, but if you had, you know, a, a longer term view on buying some stuff that might be at risk right now, and maybe you throw this into the riskier bucket, kind of targeting operators with really good rock, but are in a really tough spot and you, you buy this stuff, almost planning for them to go bankrupt, knowing an Exxon is going to come around. You can never look into the glass ball and know, but kind of just assume someone who is well positioned right now to kind of clean up opportunities on pennies on the dollar will will be the ultimate operator. And and that might take five to eight years to really play full out um, on the development side for you as a minerals owner. But if you do the math, could could work. I mean, it's an interesting idea in theory, right? No, it is. I mean, obviously you can't. You can't look into the crystal ball and, and, and know exactly what companies are, are going to be acquired by whom. But, but again, it starts with the best, the best geography or the best acreage. And if you, if you are holding mineral and royalty positions under that acreage, then obviously that is what's going to come back generally first in, in some sort of commodity price recovery. Um, and so, you know, we look at that, we look at, you know, how, how, how far or what are the differentials in terms of <clears throat> comparing, say, uh, an acquisition in, in, in the Permian Basin versus one in the Bakken or versus one in, in kind of the Rockies. And so there's, there's so many attributes to look at, but, but essentially um, you're right uh, in that it, it does make sense to look at kind of the best acreage positions uh, domestically, no matter uh, kind of who the companies are, uh, obviously that's important, but but I think the acreage trumps the operator at this point, um, because again, it will be assumed by by some company if if that firm does go into some sort of bankruptcy. Yeah, because even if they're strong, they're not going to develop it at a rapid rate in the interim anyways, so there is a bit of holding period um, that you have to, to bake in. But on, another question, so now let's speak to the, the wealth managers who have high net worth in their portfolio, the family offices, you know, LPs who are, are traditionally placing money into different funds, whether it's investing direct with you or, or, or your other peers who are raising their own funds. And they, they don't have exposure in this space yet, but they might be looking to diversify. They might be looking for opportunities in the current market, you know, for, for good returns, uh, kind of make the pitch on behalf of the space on, on, on why this is an attractive class. If you can speak financially to kind of return brackets, you know, what, what, what is it, what, what do they as an asset class act like? Is it like an alt credit or an alt bond or to sometimes of some particular types of real estate? If you can just kind of speak the language of some of the investors out there that aren't familiar with oil and gas lingo, but, will understand from a returns perspective um, and can compare it to other stuff in the portfolio. And, you know, I think it's not hard after listening to this podcast to understand that this is a really unique and opportune time to be in minerals and royalties if you have cash. And so that um, translates into a really good time to come in as a new investor, right? So can you 
can you articulate all those points and speak to them? They sure. might, you know, benefit you guys and, and others. Sure. Um, so I think first and foremost, I mean, you, you do need to look past, you know, through the fog a little bit of the next 60 to 90 days. Uh, obviously, this is an unprecedented event as we as we as we spoken about in terms of COVID-19 demand destruction. So if you can if you can look past that, you're you're essentially gaining exposure to to a high demand consumption commodity in a non-cost bearing way. So you're essentially taking the largest concern of managing expenses out of the equation and left to perform the necessary due diligence on and the items we we spoke about, the the acreage position, the operators, commodity price exposure. Uh, and we feel those are all very manageable. So it's our view that post COVID-19 global demand will return to somewhat of the long-term average growth rate of one to 2% uh, that will continue over the next decade plus. Um, so gaining exposure to minerals and royalties allows for attractive yield generation from that growth, um, as well as total return with potentially less risk if the due diligence is performed properly and the appropriate acquisition price is paid. So when I look in and talk to to investment groups that are that are looking at Cornerstone, I mean the, the strategy tends to resonate with those seeking, you know, one or a combination of say energy, uh, yield, real asset, alternative credit. Also can be used in certain instances for say tax deferral by utilizing a 1031 like kind exchange. So so those looking to rebalance their portfolios uh, and have experience but want to exit you know, pockets of their real estate holdings can potentially route towards minerals and royalties. They also have, uh, minerals and royalties also have tax efficiencies through annual depletion deductions. So again, I mean, events such as those we're experiencing always, always present opportunities which only appear as such in hindsight, right? Um, the current situation is unique in that it represents an amalgamation of risks, medical, geopolitical, and the unwinding of excess leverage. You know, we've witnessed multi-decade lows, both oil and natural gas, yet both set consumption records continuously. And again, this downturn will lead to less domestic production in the near term, uh, but next to zero non-OPEC production growth and a destabilizing Middle East. Um, you know, all of those countries rely very heavily on, on oil exports. So whether it's Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, it's Libya, it's, it's, it's a mess when uh, it becomes much more painful when, when commodity prices or oil prices in particular are, are this low. So with a deluge of, of properties sure to hit the market in the ensuing months, you know, we feel disciplined investors such as ourselves, will will have the rare opportunity to acquire assets at quite possibly the best entry point in in several decades. Awesome. Well, Darren, um, it, it's it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, your, your insights and the way you guys look at things, uh, I think, are, are quite sophisticated. And and I know a, a lot of the people who listen to this are are really going to enjoy it. So I, I appreciate your time. Any any closing comments? Um, to the investment community, to your peers, to EMPs out there you want to do business with? Just I'll, I'll let you have the, the floor here to close and then we'll wrap things up. Sure. Well, I think I've spoken to the to the individual investor who who is interested in gaining exposure to the space. But in, in terms of, you know, our community of, of mineral and royalty um, managers or EMP companies, 
Obviously, Cornerstone's always interested in looking at, at opportunities uh, for acquisition. We also, over the past 12, 24 months, have uh, entered into acquisitions with partners that we, I, w- I won't even call them competitors. We, we may have d- slightly different strategies, but again, if, if we, you want to share the risk with, with another group, um, certainly Cornerstone uh, is open to, uh, to that as well. So again, if, if, if there's, a, say, an opportunity that's, that's maybe too sizable or, or, again, somebody wants to share the risk, they can call Cornerstone or, or vice versa. Uh, we have a number of, of those that we, that we have you know, shared opportunities on in the past, which, which we go to. So, so again, whether it's an EMP company uh, or an industry group that focuses in the strategy, Cornerstone is, is more than open to looking at any opportunity um, domestically onshore. Awesome. Well, Darren, um, thank you. Stay, you know, keep safe with your family. And, you know, best of luck to you and the Cornerstone team. And we appreciate you doing this. We'll be in touch in the upcoming months. Thanks, Tim. Same to you. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in meeting Darren or any of the other executives in our network, then I encourage you to join us at our North Am Royalties Assembly in Houston and our private oil and gas investment assembly at the New York Stock Exchange later this year. For more information, please email me at tim.powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com, or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Thanks, and see you next time.